had an idea for some sermons entitled DIY, Do It Yourself. And so tonight I want to begin the first of three lessons. And let me uh, give you an idea of where I got the idea for this series of lessons. I will confess to you that I do watch some TV and there's some of it that I really do like. Uh, Home and Garden Television and DIY Network are two of my favorite networks. Two of my favorite shows are Disaster DIY and Renovation Reality. And I will tell you, if you have not seen any of those, what they are. They are where people like you and I decide they want to renovate their homes and they make every mistake known to man. And... Uh, they will do things that you will say, I can't believe they're that foolish. I don't know if we enjoy trying to see other people mess up or what, but those are two of my favorite shows. And, and really, in some ways, it's great because you can learn from someone else's mistakes. You can see the mistakes they make and say, I'm not going to be that foolish. I'm not going to make that mistake. But you see, the truth is, God intended the Bible to be accessible to all. When you look at those whom God chose to serve as His early apostles, they were not the elite. They were not the people who were sitting as the scholars in Jerusalem. He chose fishermen and farmers and ordinary people. Even when it comes to the prophets of the Old Testament, God chose men who were like us because God's message was for everyone. And we have to understand that. So when it comes to reading, studying, understanding, applying the Bible, we should not think that, oh, we have a preacher who tells us what we're going to believe. We understand that God expects us to read our own Bibles, study our own Bibles, and learn to apply it. So here's what I would like to do for the next three Sunday evenings, Lord willing. Tonight I'd like for us to talk about how to read the Bible. It's very basic and practical as that might be. And for some of you, you're saying, that just almost sounds too elementary. Then, Lord willing, next Sunday evening, I'd like for us to talk about how to study the Bible. More than just reading it, when you get to the point where you stop and you begin to consider what the biblical writers have put on paper or on papyrus or on parchment, and they began to try to say, this is a message from God. And then the third lesson, one which really is important, is how to apply the Bible. When I read this, what do I do to say this applies to me? Now, what we're going to do tonight is look at three things. We're going to look at the process the procedure, and the profit from it. And as we begin the process, I'm going to use two illustrations. Uh, these are current in the sense that they deal with situations which are modern. You know, the Lord used illustrations that dealt with the people in His day. Most often people were farmers, and so He would talk about the sowing of seed, or they were in and around the Sea of Galilee, and He talked about fishing, you know, the casting of the dragnet. And so as we think about some of these things, I want to use some illustrations I think it maybe can be helpful. And the first one, that of sports. And uh, I use this because many people's minds are still attuned to that. 
And if we start talking about a process, I get this term actually from Alabama's coach and his method of teaching his young men how to play football is called the process. And what he does, he tells them to come in and he says, here I want to train you how to play your position. And you really don't have to worry about what the guy on the other side of the ball is doing is if you have learned how to do your job, do it correctly, do it well, then you'll be all right and we'll win ball games. We have to realize that when it comes to Bible study that if you learn to read the Bible correctly, if you learn to study it and grasp what it means, and you learn how to apply it, it really doesn't matter which portion of Scripture you are reading and you're studying because you'll know how to do it. So the process is very important. Of course, another means of illustration would be that of construction. I mentioned earlier the two of the favorite shows that I watch, and sometimes I'm amazed how that people began with this idea, I know how to do it all. I'm smart. And then what happens is they begin to take out a wall and then they say, did you turn the electricity off? And next thing you know, you see sparks flying. Or did you turn the water off and then water is running out of the wall when they cut a hole through the pipe? Do you realize there is a process that a person must follow? There's things, there's safety that you must follow our pattern of it. And so when we come to studying and reading God's Word, there is a process that is involved. Part of that process is believing that you can read it and you can understand it. The fact that you have that capacity. And the truth is, the Bible is large and daunting. There's a drawer up here in the pulpit, and inside this drawer is a pulpit Bible. I don't know how many of you have known this is up here, but it's been here ever since I've been here. This book is pretty good size. There's 66 books in here. 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. This book was written, the human writers, by 40 different men over a period of 1,500 years. And someone says, I don't know that I can read that book. I don't know that I can understand that book. Sometimes we have to have the motivation to say, you can do it. In fact, tonight we are going to read it and we're going to learn from it. Some people are content to let others tell them what the Bible says. Some people are content to say, I'm not going to bring my Bible to church. I'm going to let the preacher get up there. He's, in fact, after all, he's going to put on the, the screen what he wants me to read anyway. And So why should I have to do anything? That's the most dangerous position of all because you never know if the person who stands in this pulpit or any pulpit is telling you the truth. You must not surrender your faith to any person. You must make sure that your salvation is based upon what you know God's Word says and not what someone tells you that it says. Not everyone is honest. I know that's hard to believe. Not everyone knows the truth. Ignorance abounds in this world today. So we need to be the kind of people who listens to God's Word. And I would hasten to point out to you, you remember the eunuch 
as he is reading from Isaiah chapter 53, and the Holy Spirit had sent Philip to his chariot in Acts chapter 8, and Philip asked him the question, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, how can I accept someone guides me? Not tells me what it means, but guides me and shows me so that I can understand myself. Part of the process involves respecting God's Word. Understanding what it is we're dealing with. For instance, because it is God's Word, it has respect that is due to it. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 37, Paul says that anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you, they're the commandments of the Lord. So you mean that what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, what Peter wrote in 1st, 2nd Peter, what John wrote in his epistle and in the book of Revelation in 1st and 2nd, 3rd John, and what Luke wrote in the book of Luke and Acts, those are all the commandments of the Lord? Most certainly. In 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul says, For this reason we thank God without ceasing, because you received the word of God which you heard from us. You welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God which effectively works in you who believe. But you have to respect God's word also because of the power that it contains. I mentioned earlier about watching some of these renovation shows and someone fails to turn off the power. I've seen husbands and wives standing there with pliers in their hands with live wires. And them began to put their... Oh, but they're, that could kill you. That's dangerous if you do not handle it properly. When I go to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, for the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. You know, if you had a sharp sword that is so sharp that it could cut all the way down to the bone, I'd want you to be careful if you were wielding it. And if a person is handling the Word of God, you need to make sure that you are handling it carefully because if you're not careful you can take someone and you can teach them error and you can cause them to lose their eternal soul. Romans 1 and verse 16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also for the Greek. The word power there is the word dynamis or dynamis from which we get our word dynamite. You see, as I approach this word, I've got to recognize it's not like an encyclopedia and it's not like a dictionary. I cannot open, for instance, the book of Genesis like I would look at the letter A in the alphabet and then look at Exodus like the letter B and to try to find under it specific topics listed in that fashion. It's not written that way. Neither is it like a textbook. You know, if you start in 7th grade math, you are taught a certain amount of concepts. And then you get to the 8th grade math, and they teach you a few more. 
It's not as if I go to the book of Genesis and I learn just about God there. And then I get to the book of Exodus and I learn about Jesus. And I get to the book of Leviticus and then I learn about the Holy Spirit. No, that's not the way it's written. It's more like a library. Those 66 books. In fact, I would dare say most of you have seen a chart look something like this. In fact, you may actually have one in your copy of the Bible. Where you have the books of the Bible divided up by their various types. If you'll notice, Genesis through Deuteronomy is called Law. Beginning with Joshua going through the book of Esther, you have History. Job, Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Poetry. Then you have the minor and major prophets or major and minor prophets. Come to the New Testament, you have Gospels which are really History along with the book of Acts, the letters, and then the book of Revelation. And what we call this, the separating of these, is genres. A genre means just simply a type of literature. For instance, just think with me. The part of the Bible that is written as law is like the Tennessee Code Annotated where you have listed the laws that are one or to participate in. I think of Exodus chapter 20 when Moses there reveals for God what we commonly refer to as the Ten Commandments. And then as you think about the part that begins with Joshua going through Esther, which really describes to you the history of the various people who served God under the Old Testament, particularly the judges and the kings. David and Job as well as Solomon produced poetry, and poetry is written different. For instance, if you're reading Robert Frost, who is a modern-day poet, or if you are reading, for instance, J.K. Rowling's books, which are fiction, or you are reading something else, you read them differently. They're not the same. Or you have prophecy, which was a message of God to a certain people, usually revealing something that was to take place in the future. Letters that were written to individuals. You would not read the Tennessee Code annotated like you would read as a letter written from someone to someone else. And then the apocalyptic literature, the kind like you read in the book of Revelation, which is full of symbols Colors, numbers, all which have meaning. So here's what we're going to do. Here's the procedure. We understand there's a process. There's an approach, if you will, to God's Word. The very first thing that you, all of us, would probably want to know is, what am I going to read? What part of this book would you begin with? And now let me tell you how most of us start I have two little testaments up here with me. This is the first one that I ever bought. I was with my grandfather when I was probably about 12 years old. and This is the Bible that he bought at the same time. And I remember that what I intended to do was I was going to read through the Bible. And I flip over and I look at one section and I begin to read. I don't get that, so I turn over to another section. And I don't get that. And I turn over to another section, and I don't really get that. And the next thing you know, you are 
confused. For instance, I want you to think about picking up a copy of one of the volumes of Tennessee Code Annotated and you start reading along about page 185, about two-thirds of the way down the page, and you start reading about various laws and you're like, I don't get this. And you say, this is not very interesting. So I'm going to flip over to page number 722 and start at the top of the page. And then you read a little bit and you say, well, this doesn't follow. I, I can't keep up with this. You see, our problem is the way we approach God's Word many times as we start to read can tell us whether we're going to understand it or not. It's also prone to misunderstanding. So the best plan is an organized reading of whole books or whole sections. You're going to read God's Word? Read it book by book. And so what we're going to do is look at the technique. You're going to focus from the larger to the smaller. You're going to focus on a book of the Bible. And from the book, you're going to think about who is writing the book. To whom is he writing it? Why did he write it? When did he write it? You see, this book can tell me a lot about what I'm going to read in it. For instance, if I'm thinking about the book of 1 Corinthians, I know that Paul wrote it because he said he wrote it. I know to whom he wrote it, to the church at Corinth. I can know why he wrote it. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1. Now concerning the things of which you wrote. They'd have written Paul and given him some questions that they wanted answered. He answered not only their questions, but some other things that they needed to hear. You see, you start with a book. Then from the book, you move down to a passage. The smaller section. Now, passage... Maybe one chapter, maybe two chapters, maybe a half a chapter. Someone says, well, why don't you just do it by chapters and verses? The chapters and verses were not added by God. In fact, the chapters were added by Stephen Langton in the 13th century. The 13th century. And then later on, Robert Steffens in the 16th century added the verses so he could be able to locate things as they were trying to put copies or parallels side by side so you could know where the proper verses are. In fact, we're going to see in just a few moments the way the Bible refers to other portions of Scripture. From the book, you move to the passage, and then you move to the paragraph. And if you remember your training in school and grammar, you learn that a paragraph completes a thought, and you may have several sentences in that, that that completes a thought. You move from the paragraph down to the sentence, and then from the sentence down to the word. And so for an example, I one of the best things I can tell you is, if you want to know how to do something, watch somebody do it. So tonight, I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12, we're going to look at a passage, not a book. It's just a part of it. Uh, I could have chosen to read something like Obadiah or Philemon or Jude, 
but I thought it would be good to settle on a passage. I will tell you that this passage was written by Mark. That's important. Acts chapter 12, verse 12. He lives in Jerusalem. His mother had a house. She also was a disciple. After Peter was released, they went to Mark's mother's house. His surname, Mark, his main name was John. You get to verse 25, and it says, and Saul, Barnabas and Saul returned to Jerusalem when they fulfilled their ministry, and they took with them John, whose surname was Mark. You go on and you read further about Mark, and you realize when they went to Pergam Pamphylia, he went back home. Came time for the second missionary journey. Paul didn't want to take him. Barnabas said, I'll take him. Barnabas goes to Cyprus, and Paul and Silence go another direction. Later on, when Paul writes, he says, Bring Mark with you, for he's useful to me for the ministry. Mark grew as a person. And he's writing a copy of the record of Jesus' teaching and life. This passage relates to the Sadducees, to death and resurrection. And I cannot spend all the time explaining the background behind all of this, but I will tell you, the Sadducees were a party of, a segment of the Jewish population who didn't believe in angels, they didn't believe in spirits, they didn't believe in the resurrection either. And so they're going to confront Jesus on the subject of death and the resurrection. There are two paragraphs in this passage. The first one is found in verses 18 through 23. And that is going to be a question by the Pharisees or by the Sadducees to Jesus. So we're going to read this section now. Then some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and they asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and dying he left no offspring. The second took her, and he died, nor did he leave any offspring. And the third likewise, so the seven had her, and left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore in the resurrection, when they rise... Whose wife will she be? For they all seven, or all seven, had her as wife. You see the thought. Why this is a paragraph? Because it describes who is asking the question, to whom the question is being asked, and the substance of it. Now if you'll notice, the second paragraph in this passage is found in verses 24 through 27. And it also has a complete thought, and that complete thought is Jesus' response to and the answer of that question. Jesus answered and said to them, Are you not therefore mistaken? Because you do not know the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like 
angels in heaven. But concerning the dead, that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken. Now, you see those two paragraphs contained in those two paragraphs are 14 sentences. And we could explore, but time will not permit us to explore them all, so let me just draw attention to a couple. Look with me at verse 19. Teacher, Moses wrote to us, if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. You see, there's no chapter mentioned, but there is a book mentioned, the book of Moses, which would involve five books in our Bibles, but in God's book they were one book. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And he refers to the law that says, Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 and 6, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. You see, now I know why God said what he did. Because of the name that would continue. So they made reference to the reading of God's word. But I want you to notice now verse 26. There's a difference between the word here was and the word is. In fact, the emphasis is on the tense or the, uh, the timing of it. Is it a past tense or the present tense? He said, but concerning the dead that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses in the burning bush passage how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Do you notice the way Jesus refers them to another reading from Moses? And he doesn't say, here's where I want you to turn and read from the book of Exodus. He says, the burning bush passage. That part that speaks about that. And the part that speaks about that is Exodus chapter 3, verses 2 through 6. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in the midst of the bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside to see this great sight. Why does the bush does not burn? And so the Lord saw that when he had turned aside to look, that God called out to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. 
I am. You see, Jesus said, when I go back and I look at what Scripture says, this is what it says. You read it, and you read it as it is written. There's 224 words in this section, in this passage. I will tell you that when you look at it, there's some words that pop out, that they're synonyms, like the word children and offspring. In verse 19, he said, Teacher, Moses wrote to us, If a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, the word children there is technon, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring, sperma, for her or for his brother. You see, synonyms, in fact, there's actually some significance, but again, I don't have time to explore, but as you're reading, you keep you a good dictionary by, and you try to understand the distinction between these words. Sometimes when you're reading, you can see timing involved. For instance, when they say, in the resurrection, they're referring to when the dead rise. Look at verse 23. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife shall she be? For all seven had her as wife. Verse 25. For when they rise from the dead. When you get to that period of time, Jesus said there's no marriage. There's no giving in marriage. The problem that you have raised is not a problem at all because you don't understand the Scriptures nor do you understand the power of God. Seems like I took a long time to say a little. But let me point out to you, there's profit in our reading God's Word. Paul wrote to the young man Timothy in 1 Timothy, or 2 Timothy chapter 3, and he says that from a child, childhood, you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise into salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. You see, as I read this book here, it's not just good reading. It's not just interesting reading. This book tells me how to live. What to say. What things I can do, what things I cannot do. And be pleasing to God. It provides for us spiritual understanding. You see, there's such great concepts in the Bible. The mystery that God had from old. And Paul would say in Ephesians 3, 4, By which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. I read it and then I begin to understand. And there's a blessing attached to it. Revelation 1 and verse 3 says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. There is a blessing pronounced on people who will open their Bibles and read them. And we get from that comfort and hope. Romans 15, 4, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. I can draw great benefit from that. 
That's the reason why when I go to the Bible, I find emphasis on public reading. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 8, So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. We need to be people who read God's Word. And we need to read it privately to be sure. You need to go back home and you need to say, I'm going to pick up my copy of the Bible and I'm going to read. I'm going to make sure that what the teacher taught in class today was right. What the preacher preached today was correct. Acts 17, verse 11, These are more fair-minded, they're more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they receive the word with all readiness and search the scriptures daily whether to find out those things were so. You need to be the kind of people who reads God's word. We need daily Bible readers. But don't just flip through indiscriminately. Pick a book of the Bible, read it, and then as we're going to talk about, Lord willing, next Sunday evening, let's study it so that we can grasp even the deeper thoughts that are to be found there. Tonight, if you have read God's Word, here's what you've come across. We're all sinners. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, all sin and fallen short of the glory of God. You've also come across the fact that God loved us enough that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life, John 3 and verse 16. You learn that a person has to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, John 8 and verse 24, and repent of sins, Luke 13, verses 3 and 5, and then be baptized for the remission of sins, Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, Acts 22, verse 16, 1 Peter 3, 21, and on and on and on. If you are a Christian, what you read in your Bible is, is that God doesn't want us to sin. He doesn't want us to make mistakes. In fact, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1 says, My little children, these things I have written unto you that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You see, God doesn't want us to sin, but we recognize the fact that from time to time we are going to make mistakes. And when we do, God wants us to return to Him. Tonight, if you need to respond to the invitation, would you come while together we stand and sing?